Welcome to Saturday Evening Torah Class, an in-depth interdisciplinary study of the Hebrew Scriptures. Tonight's lesson is week number 19, Genesis chapter 19. You know, the point of Torah class is to study the Holy Scriptures and not to establish or learn doctrines. Okay? Nor are we a class that centers around topical discussions, are we? Now, however, as I said to you many weeks back in the introduction to Torah class, um, while we're generally going to go verse by verse through the Torah and explain its meaning and content rather thoroughly, we're going to come upon sections of Scripture that demand that we pause and discuss them as a topic in a little wider manner um, than only its immediate context. Now, at times, like last week and this week, we're going to discuss some of the more difficult and controversial issues. Now, as a result of Genesis 18, the Genesis 18 and 19 story of the three men who visited Abraham and Sarah, three men who it turned out were Yahweh, Jehovah, okay, and two heavenly messengers, angels, it opened up what I think is always going to be somewhat of an unresolved mystery this side of eternity. And that is, what is the real and full nature and essence of God. Yet, just because we can't come up with a fully adequate answer to that question, it doesn't mean that we should also accept questionable doctrines just because they're easy or traditional. Now, you know, it wasn't until the 4th century AD, not until the church was Romanized and Gentilized, that the three persons concept of the Trinity was born. Okay. The earliest known record ever found of the three persons doctrine comes from what is called the Athanasian Creed. All right. And it basically goes like this. We worship one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity. For there is one person of the Father, another of the Son, another of the Holy Ghost is all one. They are not three gods, but one God. The whole three persons are co-eternal and co-equal. He therefore that will be saved must think of the Trinity. Now I stress, it was the early church, in fact, the church fathers and the church as it existed for the first 300 years after Christ's crucifixion knew nothing of such a concept as God being a conglomerate of three persons, three people, three pieces. They knew full well that the Lord God was one Lord, not three lords. Now the Shema, many of you have heard this term, the Shema, Okay, in, which is contained in Deuteronomy, expresses this. And the New Testament also, from the very mouth of our Savior, in Luke, repeats it. Here is what is called the Shema okay, in the Torah. Now pay attention to this place. Okay. Deuteronomy 6.4 Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. 
The Lord is one. That's the Shema. Okay? Now, here's the Shema in the New Testament. In Mark 12:29, Jesus answered, The foremost is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. Now, whether while we're not ever going to be able to fully untangle all this mystery surrounding the very nature of God, I think we can shed some light on it. Right? And one of the ways we can do this is by reestablishing the holy name or names of God in our Bibles. Okay. I'm so convinced that, that so many of the false doctrines and concepts that we're just now beginning to unearth and face head on are the result of God's name being set aside in favor of some rather generic terms like God and Lord. Now, I'm not so much talking about whether we should call the Messiah Jesus, Yeshua, Yahshua, Yahashua, all right, Christ, something like that. That's not the point. All right. Nor whether God's name is Yahweh, Yahweh, Yehovah, Jehovah, Yah, or whatever. That's another topic. All right. We know for sure that the Hebrew letters for God's Almighty name, for God Almighty's name, are Yud Hey Vav Hey. Okay. This is called the scholars call this the Tetragrammaton. Okay. And of course, Hebrew is a language that you read from right to left. Okay. Yud, hey, vav, hey. Alright. And so, since we go this direction, we say Yahweh, Yahweh, alright, which, whatever. Um, now, I'm unaware, as a matter of fact, of any disagreement among scholars, Christian or Hebrew, over this, that this is God's name. All right. How you pronounce it, whether you should say it or not, all right, that's, that's another issue. All right. But as far as that being God's name, that's God's name. Now, the issue we have before us is why have general terms like Lord and God replaced and been and has substituted for the name of God in the Bible? Why has that happened? Now please understand that we're not alone in this. Okay? The Jewish people themselves began this practice around 300 years before the birth of Christ. Okay? Now thankfully Though they substituted the words Lord and God when they read the scriptures out loud or when they wrote commentary about God, they didn't tamper with the copies of the original scriptures. When they copied the scriptures down, they left yud Hey vav Hey everywhere that it was. So that came on down to us. You see... It might surprise you to know that 
90% of the time in the Old Testament that our Bibles say Lord, that's not what the original Hebrew said. The original Hebrew didn't say Lord, it didn't say God, and it didn't say Adonai, which is just Hebrew for Lord. It said Yahweh. It said Y-H-W-H yud heh vav -Hey. Again, this isn't disputed among scholars. It just isn't Christian or Hebrew. I'm not bringing you any new information here. Okay? I'm just bringing it into the light of day. Okay? And this is not supposition. Because one of the most outstanding things about our find of the Dead Sea Scrolls is that we found a source for Old Testament documents more than 800 years older than the ones we had before that time. We now have, with the Dead Sea Scrolls, copies of almost all the books of the Old Testament dating to the birth of Christ and before. So we know what scrolls Christ had at that time. Okay. Now, to give you one example of what I'm getting at about all this, Allow me, please, to repeat the Shema of Deuteronomy and then of Luke in Hebrew for you, okay? so that you can begin to grasp the problem we face. Again, this is Deuteronomy 6.4. Okay, in Hebrew, it says this, Shema Yisrael, Yahweh Eloheinu, Yahweh Echad. Here, O Israel, Yahweh is our God, Yahweh is one. Now, here's the thing. If you've heard Jews speaking it today, if you've been in a Messianic synagogue today, you're going to hear it just a tad different. Okay? You're going to hear it usually the traditional way, which is not the scripture. It's just tradition. And the traditional Jewish way of saying the Shema is to say, Shema Yisrael Adonai. Eloheinu Adonai Echad. Okay? Yeah. All right. But that's tradition. That's not scripture. That's right. The words Yahweh, Yud He Vav He, are right there. And many of you have bought a parallel English Hebrew Bible. And if you haven't, you should have. Go home tonight and open it up and check me out. You're going to find yud hey vav hey in all of those places. Okay? Now, it is well documented why the Jews stopped using God's name. All right? And substituted Hashem, Adonai, several other general terms. But for reasons that escape me, all right, the church has, for its own good reasons, also chosen to follow this Jewish tradition and ignore the original written texts. All at the same time, it is practically completely thrown out every other Jewish element of the scriptures that it could. Doesn't make sense to me, but that's what's happened. Now, reinserting God's name... Yahweh, yud heh vav -Hey, back into the Shema doesn't really cause the church any particular doctrinal problems. 
You know, I mean, we could read that any way we wanted to read it, and it really doesn't create a problem. But allow me to give you an example of the problem that reinserting God's name into Scripture can create. Okay. Now, the general conclusion by Christian scholars and church authority is that Yeshua, Jesus, is going to return, of course, and I certainly count on that as most of you do. And in the New Testament, in Acts 1.11, it tells us that when he returns, he will come in the manner in which he left. And that manner is generally considered to mean, first, in the form in which he left, meaning this God-man that we identify as the Messiah, as Jesus, Yeshua. Okay. Second, from the place that he left, from the Mount of Olives, from where he ascended. All right. And third, in the way that he left. All right. That is, up into the clouds of the sky so that he'll come back, it says, from the sky. All right. Now, one of the great and dramatic pieces of the story of Christ's return is that when he returns, he will first touch planet Earth on the summit of the Mount of Olives. And when he does, a violent cataclysm is going to take place. The mountain, it says, is going to split with the fault line running east to west. You guys recall this? Okay. Now you might think if one wanted to find the Bible reference to this particular event, we would thumb over to Revelation. Or at least we would look somewhere in the New Testament. In fact, the return to the Mount of Olives is not found in the New Testament. It's found in the Old Testament, in the book of the prophet Zechariah. And it is generally assumed that this passage is referring to the end times and the coming of the Lord, which I certainly agree with. I, I believe that's the case too. Now, open your Bibles, please, to Zechariah chapter 14. I'd like you all to follow along with me here. Now, if you've got the complete Jewish Bible, it's page 783. We're talking Zechariah 14. And since we have new folks here regularly, let me explain something about this Bible. You don't have to have this Bible. This is one of probably 50 excellent Bibles out there. All right. I read from this because because it's reinserted the Jewish names into it. I just like the way it reads. Okay. My translation is no more correct or incorrect than yours. All right. If you've got a good, legitimate Bible, anything from King James to whatever, it's great for this class. Don't worry about it. Zechariah 14. I'm going to read 1 through 9. It may sound a little different than yours. Again, this is how the complete Jewish. Look, a day is coming for Adonai when your plundered Jerusalem will be divided right there within you. For I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem for war. The city will be taken, the houses will be rifled, the women will be raped, and half the city will go into exile. But the rest of the people will not be cut off from the city. Then Adonai will go out and fight against those nations. 
fighting as on a day of battle. On that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which lies to the east of Jerusalem, and the Mount of Olives will be split in half from east to west to make a huge valley. Half the mountain will move towards the north and half of it will move to the south. You will flee to the mountains, to the valley in the mountains, for the valley in the mountains will reach to Atzel. You will flee just as you fled before the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Yehudah. Then Adonai, my God, will come to you with all the holy ones. On that day, there will be neither bright light nor thick darkness, and one day, known to Adonai, will be neither day nor night, although by evening there will be light. On that day, fresh water will flow out from Jerusalem, half toward the eastern sea, half towards the western sea, both summer and winter. Then Adonai will be king over the whole world, and on that day Adonai will be the only one, and his name will be the only name. Amen? Okay, that's fine and dandy. No problem with any of that, right? Nothing new, nothing particularly difficult there. Now, now, I won't read it in complete Hebrew, but what I'm going to read it to you, I'm going to insert everywhere yud heh vav -Hey. What's yud heh vav -Hey? Yahweh, Yahweh, we say Jehovah, whatever. Okay, Wherever God's name actually appears in the original, I'm going to put that in now and reread the whole thing doing that. Are you ready? Follow along with me. Zechariah 14. See, a day shall come for Yahweh, and your spoil shall be divided in your midst. And I shall gather all the Gentiles to battle against Jerusalem, and the city shall be taken the houses plundered and the women ravished. Half of the city shall go into exile, but the remnant of the people shall not be cut off from the city. And Yahweh shall go forth, and he shall fight against those Gentiles as he fights in the day of battle. And in that day his feet shall stand upon the Mount of Olives. Whose feet? Whose feet? Ah which faces Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall be split in two, from east to west a very great valley, and half of the mountain shall move towards the north, and half of it towards the south. And you shall flee to the valley of my mountain, for the valley of the mountains reaches to Atzel. And you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, sovereign of Yehuda. And Yahweh my Elohim shall come, all the set-apart ones with you. And in that day it shall be, there is no light, it is dark. It shall be one day which is known to Yahweh, neither day nor night, but at evening there shall be light. And in that day it shall be that living waters flow from Jerusalem, half of them towards the eastern sea and half of them towards the western sea, in summer as well as in winter, and Yahweh shall be sovereign over all the earth. And in that day there shall be one Yahweh and his name Echad. One. Hmm. That complicates things just a tad, doesn't it? Doesn't it? Hmm. Now, since we know who the Messiah is, all right, Yeshua, Jesus, we have always assumed 
that we could just insert the word Jesus or Yeshua right here in these verses. Tying up all these loose ends, making it all nice and neat and comfortable, but it seems we cannot. Because the original Hebrew says, Yud, Hey, Vav, Hey, Yahweh, who touches down on the Mount of Olives. Hmm. In fact, verse 9 says that it is Yahweh and goes on to add that his name is Echad, One. This, my friends, is a description completely reserved in the Bible for the totality of the Godhead. From the traditional point of view, the sum of the Holy Spirit, Father, and Son. That which we often simply refer to as God. So what are we supposed to do with this? Okay. First, even if we can't fully comprehend it okay, or explain it away, we're going to have to acknowledge that it's so. All right? And not just turn our minds off to it. If we do, it says we much prefer to be comfortable rather than go explore for the truth. Doesn't it? Now these verses specifically say yud heh vav Yahweh, is descending on the Mount of Olives. Okay. Second, we must recognize the supreme importance of having God's name reinserted into our Bibles. Okay. Without it, we miss so much context of these verses and the identity of who's being discussed. Okay. Third, we're going to have to re-examine some of these cherished end times assumptions. And by the way, let's be clear that so much of modern church doctrine about end times events is just that, doctrine. And Tim LaHaye's Left Behind series hasn't helped matters any. I mean, it is a fascinating story. It is, without a doubt. But it's a story. Okay? This is why you find it in the fiction section all right, of Barnes & Noble. Right? Though if you ask around, you're going to find a lot of people who felt like they've just read exactly how it's all going to come out. Now, fourth, we're probably going to have to acknowledge that our standard three persons assessment, and we'll get around to understanding what I mean by that, and description of Yahweh is not a good one. And that, in fact, it is the man-created church doctrine of the Trinity and how it is structured needs to be looked at again. Now, let me be clear. I am not necessarily challenging the nature of God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but rather the conclusions that the modern church has come to about it, along with the structure that's been given to it. And from that formed a doctrine, a very specific idea of what it all means, All right, that we have come to just call the doctrine of the Trinity. So don't let anyone leave here thinking I'm saying otherwise, nor should anyone in any way think that I'm challenging the deity of Christ. All right, that Yeshua is God, I am not. All right. The problem is that we have created a doctrine whereby we can pretty well separate the so-called persons of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Okay. We can even pretty well separate their functions. 
But I'm not sure that that separation that we ascribe between these can be justified. If we take the three persons concept to its logical extreme, then while Christ roamed the Holy Lands, two-thirds of God was in heaven and one-third was on the earth. That is, God in heaven was incomplete. A piece of him was somewhere else. Okay. The Bible goes to great lengths to stress that Yahweh is a chad. He is one. So unless he's performing self-amputation, our three persons model has some flaws. Now let me give you an illustration of what I think is another one we should consider. And I'm going to use my dear wife as an example. After, please. Using Bible terms in a similar way that God is described according to his attributes, I could refer to Becky in the following manner. Becky, wife of Tom. Becky, mother of children. Becky, grandmother of our grandchildren. Becky, who comforts me. Becky, who walks beside me. Becky, who is in charge of our household. Becky, compassionate and merciful and friend to many. All right, and so on. What I'm basically doing is describing several of the many attributes of Becky. Okay. Now, can I take any one of these attributes of Becky and separate them from all the rest? Mm -mm. I cannot. Can I take one of these attributes and discuss it separately from all the rest? Of course I can. But can I somehow identify physically a certain part of Becky that was one of those attributes that I just mentioned? No. Can a surgeon go into her body and find that part of Becky that is the wife of Tom and examine it? Can we look at an x-ray and take a picture of that part of Becky that's friend to many? Can I separate from Becky that piece of her that comforts me? Of course not. Yet all of these attributes of Becky exist. They have names and more together they form who Becky is. I can speak of these attributes separately, but I cannot separate any of them from Becky nor, can, nor remove any one of those attributes from her and allow the rest to remain. And more important, I don't have a whole bunch of Becky persons running around, each with a single function. Okay, There is just one Becky with many attributes. You follow me on this? Okay. So how do we apply this to our challenge of envisioning the nature of God? Well, we can begin by envisioning Father, Son, and Holy Spirit as attributes of Yahweh rather than as separate pieces of Yahweh. And as a way of demonstrating these attributes rather quickly, we can express the function of each attribute in an admittedly very simplistic fashion. Okay, now, 
Let me say before some of you want to argue about all this, okay, that I can only offer you a very primitive and incomplete illustration. Okay, because Yahweh is spirit. He's not a physical being. Okay, he's not like you or I. Right? So, in a nutshell, here is how I think we can boil down the basic functions of the Godhead. The Father is the grand author of the divine plan. The Holy Spirit is the container and messenger of the divine plan. And the Son, also called the Word, is the grand executor of the divine plan. And yet, just as we can talk about Becky's various attributes and their functions separately, but can't physically identify them or separate them, that would give us three Beckys. Okay? So it is with God's attributes and functions. Let me make a further analogy. Becky has a soul, which is the grand author of her plans. She has a mind, an intellect, which is the grand container and messenger of those plans. And she has a body that executes those plans. Now her soul, which depending on what part of the Bible one reads, is either synonymous with her spirit or the place where, where her spirit resides. Okay, It is fully spiritual in nature, is it not? Okay. Her soul is the eternal part of Becky, and it, and it has no physical substance to, it, substance to it whatsoever. Her soul is where the spiritual part of the universe connects with her. And it is that part of every human being that separates us from all other living creatures that God created. Becky's body is that attribute of her which can carry out plans. Okay. Our bodies are a direct, are our direct connection with the physical world, just as our souls are our direct connection to the spiritual world. Becky can be full of ideas, but without a mouth to express them, a hand to write them, arms and legs to bring those ideas to fruition, then having an idea is useless, if not meaningless. At least it's that way in our universe. Now, Becky's mind connects her soul to her body. It's the messenger and container that brings the ideas from her spiritual soul to her physical body so that the ideas can be carried out. Our souls do not have a direct connection to our bodies. Okay? So our minds function to provide a sort of bridge, if you would, between the spiritual soul and the physical body. Now I can speak of those three functions rather easily. And we can all sit around and discuss whether my assessment of their operation and purpose is correct or not. But try as we might, the one thing we can't do is separate them from Becky. They're organically connected. I cannot send Becky's mind to Miami, her soul to Orlando, and her body to Jacksonville. Okay. Further, if any of these attributes and their functions were to cease to exist, Becky wouldn't be Becky anymore. Okay. It's similar with God. God's attributes 
are identified to us in Bible speak as his names. Each of God's names represents an attribute of God. God Almighty, the God who heals, the King of Heavenly Hosts, the God who protects, and so on. Okay? Therefore, when we speak of Yeshua, Jesus, okay, we need to realize that this is yet another name that describes an attribute of God. Because Yahshua, his Hebrew name, means God saves. Yahshua is the saving attribute of God. He's the saving attribute of Yahweh. Now, as to the conundrum of how to explain Yahshua in relation to Yahweh, first, understand that whatever I can come up with is going to be terribly inadequate. Second, understand that Yahweh is completely unrestrained or limited. Okay, and that he operates in a number of dimensions, the existence of which we've only recently been able to even establish all right, with some certainty. Yahshua, the Hebrew name of Jesus, means God saves. Now, well, Yahshua is a name and an attribute of God. It is also a function and a purpose of God. Jesus, the man who was typical of one of God's attributes, saving salvation, played out his saving function and purpose on earth. Okay. Jesus carried out physically on earth God's plan of salvation. Okay. The Son, that spiritual attribute of God, okay, who is also called the Word, is the spiritual executor of all God's plans in heaven. Yahweh the Father came up with the plan of salvation. The function of the Son, which is to execute the Father's attributes, the Father attributes plans, executed them on earth by putting that attribute of himself into a real man, Jesus of Nazareth. He wasn't an apparition. He was a real man. Okay. The container and messenger of that plan, the attribute called the Holy Spirit, came into Christ on the day he was baptized by John. Okay. The day his earthly execution of the salvation plan was to begin. We are told that his earthly ministry did not begin until the Holy Spirit, the messenger and container of the Father's plan, was put into him. Okay. Without doubt, Jesus the man did not know all that was ahead of him. He didn't know what to do and when to do it until the Holy Spirit was placed on him. And even after receiving the Holy Spirit, if, we, if we'll look very carefully at the scriptures, we'll see that while he had some knowledge of what was going to happen and what he was going to do, it was not all immediately complete. Now, how can Yeshua, Jesus, say that if you've seen me, you've seen the Father? Because if you've witnessed the execution of the plan in absolute perfection, as established by the planner, you've seen the author of the plan. Okay. General George Patton once said, because he was so familiar with that brilliant German General Rommel's tactics and strategies, he knew the man well. Okay. Yeshua, 
Jesus the Christ, the one born in Bethlehem, our Savior, raised in Nazareth, is the physical earthly side to the reality of duality. Okay. He is the physical earthly side of the heavenly spiritual son attribute of Yahweh. When we saw Yeshua, we saw that when Yeshua arose, right, um, a similar transformation that we're going to go through called resurrection right, happened. Our bodies are going to transform from a physical earthly kind into some kind of a heavenly body, we're told. Okay. Just as his spirit departed from him on the cross and was rejoined to him upon his resurrection, so it's going to be with us. Okay. Our spirits that have left our bodies and gone on ahead of us will be rejoined to the new and incorruptible bodies upon our resurrection. Okay. That is, whereas Yeshua was at one time physical earthly in body, but with a holy spiritual nature in him far beyond any normal man, okay. he was transformed into the fully heavenly spiritual upon his resurrection and now lives in heaven, we're told, the Father's right hand. Okay. So it will be for us after the resurrection. The earthly son, Yeshua, all right, was after his death transformed into the spiritual and brought into a full and new type of unity with the heavenly son attribute of Yahweh. He was the first fruits of the resurrection. We will be the final ingathering. Okay? Now, if all I've done is move you along a path to reconsider that God does not consist of three separable pieces called persons, but that the, he is, as the Torah says, Echad, one, that I've done my job for today. What words can we use to describe Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are completely debatable. I have no doubt. There's nothing fabulous about my choice of the word attribute because it is not fully adequate either. I just did it in hopes of stimulating your own search of the scriptures. The scriptures. And you're striving with God to know him and understand him better. So let's move on a little bit now. Let's, let's get on and we'll do just a, a few minutes of more of Genesis uh, 19. And then we'll call it a day, a night, whatever it is. Okay, let's turn your Bibles to Genesis 19. Genesis 19. I'm going to read about the first 10 or 11 verses and we'll stop there. The two angels came to Sodom that evening when Lot was sitting at the gate of Sodom. Lot saw them, got up to greet them, and prostrated himself on the ground. And he said, Here now, my lords, please come over to your servant's house. Spend the night, wash your feet, get up early, and go on your way. No, they answered, We'll stay in the square. But he kept pressing them. So they went home with him. 
and he made them a meal baking matzah for their supper which they ate. But before they could go to bed, the men of the city surrounded the house, young and old, everyone from every neighborhood of Sodom. They called Lot and said to him, Where are those men who came to stay with you tonight? Bring them out to us. We want to have sex with them. Lot went out to them and stood in the doorway, closing the door behind him and said, Please, my brothers, don't do such a wicked thing. Look, I have two daughters here who are virgins. Please, let me bring them out to you. And you can do with them what seems good to you. But don't do anything to these men since they are guests in my house. Stand back, they replied. You know, this guy came to live here and now he's decided to play judge. Okay, for that, we'll deal worse with you than with them. Then, the crowd, then they crowded in on Lot and in order to get close enough to break down the door. But the men inside reached out their hands, brought Lot into the house to them and shut the door. Then they struck the men at the door of the house with blindness, both small and great, so they couldn't find the doorway. Well, in um, chapter 19, verse 1, it says, Lot fell on his face before these two angels. Now, does this mean Lot knew they were angels? Okay, I don't think so. All right? The Oriental world at that time treated visitors and guests with great honor. Okay, bowing low was a customary greeting to a visitor as was inviting them into your home to stay. The angels saying no to Lot's initial offer that they go ahead and just stay in the square, that is, the area near the, 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 the front gate, the front gate of the city, um, is, is a little like us saying, oh no, that's just too much trouble for you. You know, we don't really mean it. This cordial Middle Eastern kabuki dance okay, between host and guest has stayed generally unchanged right up through to today. Now, as we move through Torah, we're going to find several mentions of someone sitting in the gate, all right, which is where we find Lot when the angels arrive. First, understand that the gate was the way into the walled city. Okay? If a city had a wall, that meant the city was pretty substantial. Second, a gate typically had a tower and some guard rooms. And it required a person walking to enter through a couple of rooms, make some quick turns to kind of get from the outside to the inside, you know, like a little maze. That way it was harder for the group of bandits or an army to suddenly rush into the gateway, through the gateway into the city. And third, the gate area in that era doubled as the town square. It was a general meeting place okay, where official business occurred. Trials even occurred there. The idea was that whatever business was occurring was public and therefore had witnesses and could be attested to. And now I'd like you to notice in verse 3 that Lot prepared his guests a meal with matzah, which is the Hebrew word for unleavened bread, a flat bread made without yeast. This is done when meal preparation has to be hurried, when there's no time for the bread to rise. Why is this pointed out here? Okay, because we're soon going to find out they are in a hurried situation because they're about ready to flee. Okay, we're going to see similar scenes in a number of places in the Old Testament, but perhaps the most famous, of course, is the exodus from Egypt.
right, where God instructed the Israelites to eat a final meal of unleavened bread so they could get out of Dodge fast. Okay, this preparation of unleavened bread is another of the many patterns and types that we're going to find as we weave our way through the Torah and the scriptures. Now, next we see the event that so many of us learned about back in Sunday school. The men of Sodom wanted to harm Lot's Lot's two guests who were actually angels and Lot tried to stop them. What we probably didn't hear in children's Sunday school was that these incredibly perverted and wicked men of Sodom wanted to commit unspeakable sexual acts on these men and that Lot offered these evil men his own daughters if they leave the two angels alone. Now if you're anything like me, that's unimaginable that I'd offer my own daughters up for rape rather than have anything happen to my two guests. But once again we run into a completely typical cultural situation for that time. Okay? It was considered the duty of a family to care for their guests above themselves. Okay. They were to give up their own lives, if necessary, to protect their guests. And that's what we see happening here. But we also see something else. We get an example of the horrendous wickedness of Sodom. Okay. Sufficient wickedness that Yahweh has determined to eradicate the place and the people. And it is sexually immoral wickedness, which you find in the study of Leviticus ranks as among the worst of the worst human sins before God. And the exhibited sin here revolves around homosexuality. These men lusted after other men to the point that when Lot offered his virgin daughters, they declined. Now I cannot just let this pass without saying that despite most of the world's highest cultures now taking all social stigma out of homosexuality and as Canada just did making marriage between two people of the same sex legal and in doing so glorifying sexual perversion we see Yahweh's opinion of it here in Genesis 19 he destroyed everybody involved with it now notice that it doesn't say that the people of Sodom committed idolatry. It doesn't say they cheated one another. It doesn't say they practiced injustice. The only sin mentioned was homosexuality. Now no doubt those other things occurred. Okay? But that's not what was recorded for us to read 4,000 years later. Now we got to fight with every means we have to prevent our nation from going this direction. Now there's probably many of us in this room that have children or grandchildren who are gay. That's a certainty. Okay? And we love them. That's, that's a certainty. That they're committing a sin of the highest order is a certainty. That they're wrong is a certainty. Okay? That we have Christian churches who now ordain homosexuals is perhaps even more disturbing. I mean, are we ever going to rid our American society of this immorality? Not likely. Okay. But following Yahweh is not about taking polls. It's not about majority rules. It's not about following the crowd. 
Okay, standing against this is our duty, no matter no matter how unpopular it is. Okay, now what happens next in our story is that it turns out these two men, angels, who Lot thinks he's protecting, are actually protecting Lot. And they do so by first supernaturally blinding the men who are trying to batter down the door to get to them and then by insisting that Lot and his family leave quickly before the destruction begins. And I think we'll take up next week from here.